How do people react? If you're at a dinner party or at a party and you oh. say what you do... One of two ways. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, they either don't want to know, they don't want to talk about it, they don't want to talk about death and mm. what it means and how it's dealt with, or... Or the world completely stops and that's it, you're the focus of attention. Yes. Georgie Vesti, and you're listening to Dead Honest, a podcast for anyone curious about the world of death and the people who work there. I've been interested in death since I was a little girl, and it's a fascination that's never left me. It's become a big part of my working life, and for over 25 years, I've been advising families on how to campaign in the wake of a traumatic loss. And that's brought me into contact with some extraordinary people. Funeral directors, family liaison officers, memorial photographers, pretty much anyone and everyone who supports us when we die or when we're dead. And I want you to meet them. This week, it's the turn of Karen and Bob, who you heard earlier, two coroner's officers who spend their days investigating sudden and unexpected deaths. Deaths like your boss having a fatal heart attack on a family fun run or the woman who jumped in front of your train on the way to work. So who are these people who are left to literally pick up the pieces? Tell me about your role as a coroner's officer. What does a typical day look like for you? We deal with unexpected, unnatural deaths that come in and are reported to us either by the police, GPs, hospitals, funeral directors. So the day starts really with dealing with anything that's come in overnight and getting details and referring to the coroner. The coroner will then give us directions as to the level of investigation that each death requires. We will also attend the scene with the police and offer assistance. So take me through the process. Somebody has been killed in a fatal car accident. You attend the scene with the police or are you called before the police? The police would call us once all of the scene investigation has been done. We would then arrange the removal of the deceased to the appropriate mortuary and we would take the deceased to the mortuary. We would assist with identification searching for property, anything that can identify um, the person, which we could feed back to the police um, and the coroner as well, so that next of kin can be informed as soon as possible. What we don't want is identifications being done perhaps at a roadside. They need to be done properly, um, and we can assist with that. And it is at this point, when the body has been taken to the morgue or mortuary, that it is usually formally identified because establishing who has died is one of the four questions a coroner has to answer. The other three are when they died, where they died, and how they died. And by that they mean the manner of their death. Was it suicide, murder, accident, or natural causes? But let's return to the first question. Who is this dead body? And do families have to identify their relatives? If so, how do you begin to prepare them for such a heartbreaking task? I think the, the biggest mm. um, misconception is that every deceased has to be formally identified by a loved one or somebody that is known. Very rarely does that actually happen. We're able to identify people without that formality of people coming to see them. 
there are occasions when that does need to be done or that the family just request that they want to see them. We always are open and honest with our families. We will prepare them in advance. We will visit the deceased before the family so that we know exactly what they are going to be seeing. Um, But I think just being open and honest, keeping them prepared and taking them very slowly through the process of coming into the room, it's nothing like you see on the telly. And that's what we need to get across to families. That is one of the worst things, actually, uh, the TV perception of doing a formal identification. So you walk into the room and there's a bank of drawers, literally, on the, and they pull a drawer out, is that him? Yeah. That does the service such an injustice because um, it's, it's done in a very, very human and personal way. The family will come to the hospital at the appointed time and as Karen says, we will inspect the deceased. But one thing I must add is the skill of the mortuary technicians in preparing the deceased for viewing. They're absolutely amazing in what they can do. The deceased will be presented on a bed as if they're asleep, under the covers, head on a pillow, and it's in a a softly lit room and the family can either look through the glass or they can come in and sit with their loved one, hold a hand if if possible, give them a kiss on the forehead if possible. it's it's done in a very very human and personal way we do get the ones that take an unpredicted twist you could say in that a family member will well emotionally freak out break down and i've had it where a family member has just clamped onto the body uh, and tried to hug it well, they have been hugging it and would not be released from it. How do we react in that? We let them for as long as we think um, is normal. And on this particular occasion, it was for over 20 minutes. They were not going to move. I mean, we're not going to go and rip people away from people like that. They're, it's their way of dealing with it, and we'll, we'll help them as much as we can. How important is viewing for a family in terms of them being able to process their grief? It's very important for some of them, those that want to do it. Because sometimes we'll get a group of family members there who are all prepared. You're going to go in, then I'm going to go in. And at the point of going in, some will say, I'm sorry, I can't. And some will step back. For me, I always thought that doing viewings and identifications was going to be very emotional, Mm. very distressing. Actually, it's not. Most families are very dignified. Totally. A lot of private grieving, not huge outpourings of emotion. So I think things are not as bad as people quite often think they're going to Mm. be. And I think that was my misconception of doing the job, is I thought Mm. it would just be highly emotional. And Mm. yes, it is, but it's, it's very dignified. Do you ever see a difference between men and women in that situation when they're viewing? Everybody is different. The people that perhaps you've been dealing with on the telephone and then you meet them at the viewing normally react completely differently Mm. to what you would expect. They're very good at holding it together on the phone, but actually when you get to the viewing, need a lot of support. Or those that are unable to deal with things on the phone and you've had to spend a lot of time with them, actually, by the time they come to the viewing, 
hold it together very well. Mm. You never know. All the circumstances of the death, what you may think is perhaps a, a natural death, may invoke a huge outpouring of grief, whereas a, perhaps a suicide doesn't particularly. So again, you never know how families are going to react. This next section deals with suicide, and I'm flagging this up for two reasons. One, you may want to skip it if this is an issue that has affected you personally. But I also want to mention something which I noticed when I played back this interview. When we talk about this subject, Bob and Karen sound a little reticent at times. In fact, I'd even go as far as to say they sound positively strained. And this is for three reasons. First, they're not used to publicly discussing this aspect of their work. Second, they are still serving coroner's officers, so they need to be really respectful of confidentiality. But the third reason speaks to a darker problem. There is a concern that every time suicide is discussed, it encourages further suicides. This is why I'm circumspect about describing anything which may identify the geographical location we are discussing. It's a prickly subject and you can hear the prickles. I could have left it out, but I wanted you to hear the strain and I wanted you to appreciate how tough this job is when you can't even talk openly or share something which consumes about 70% of your working life. You're based in an area of England that has a very high level of suicide associated with a particular geographical yep. location. And I just wanted to know, why do you think people are drawn to that location? Oh, there's, it's, it's a location that is steeped in history. People can mention its name to someone and they, they, if, if that person is in crisis, it's a name that um, I think holds power and um, evokes reactions, which is what that particular person may be after. But it also, um, it, it, it literally does um, rouse the senses. It sounds to me like it's almost got some sort of magnetism. I would agree with that. Yeah, I would agree with that. It's very difficult to explain, but um, yeah, there there is without a doubt a magnetism because um, uh, people come from all over the world. Might as well say it. People come from all over the world, but again, we we give a, a hundred percent to um, the the poor souls that lose their lives there, and also, more importantly, after that, to the families. Why do you think that suicide is increasing? Um, are we suicide increasing at that spot or suicide increasing in general? Well, is suicide increasing at that spot? Yes, it is. We are currently looking at why that is. Um, there is a huge working group at the moment. My own personal belief is that social media has played a huge part in suicide. Um, you only have to look at recently a, a, a relatively high profile case of suicide a couple of weeks ago and then that person's partner then committed suicide a couple of days ago. I think it has to play a part. Um, people are more aware of suicide, how and where um, to do it. Um, and I think that has a huge impact on younger people. 
if we end up with something that becomes newsworthy, as Karen um, touched on, then we do tend to have a spike. This is what's happening at the moment. Bob and I have been doing this job over 12 years and it used to be that if you saw this area on the TV or you heard about it, a filming location, you could almost guarantee that there would be a death within mm. a few days. Now with social media, it, it, it is days um, and unfortunately the past few months mm. um, has been higher profile cases um, and uh, yeah a lot on social media mm. and local news and national news as well mm. because it is um, so well known and just stepping back a bit I was uh, watching the um, police logs uh, it was uh, last Friday I think it was and during the course of about um, six hours there was five incidents at that location where people had travelled to, were sitting close to, were brought back from, had phoned other people to say, that's it, I'm going there. Um, but a, a lot of those um, five incidents were um, designed to get reactions. And of course each one is reacted to by the police. It, it draws on the, the manpower and uh, just when they finish dealing with one and everyone stands down, the next one will, will happen and they're back up there and searching. And I think out of five incidents, they found three people. There were no fatalities, but there was five separate incidents that were all using that location to draw attention to their crisis. It's mm. hard to talk about it. It's a mm. huge part of our job. But of course, we don't want to draw attention to yeah. it, but it's a big part of what we mm. do. I can imagine there's a, a, a very real possibility of burnout. How do you protect yourselves from that? We have a very good team, and I think that's the most important thing that prevents that, particularly in our office, and we support each other. Mm. Now, now and again, it, it, it's very difficult to explain but I'll just give an example if one of us is talking to a family on the phone sometimes you can be in tears at the end of it you know we're human next thing you know you haven't said anything your head's down or whatever you've got four sets of arms around your shoulders you know it's getting me going now <laughs> but yeah that, that, that is the best part what Karen, Karen has just explained and also um, working with the team that I'm proud to be part of so what's the worst part of your job? That's a long pause, isn't it? Yeah, to think about the worst, the worst part. Being on holiday. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, I, I suppose for me, uh, you, you wouldn't believe it, but, um, you know, hunky bloke, not, not hunky bloke. <laughs> Right. Big, big bloke as I am. Big hunk of a man. Go, go. And hunky too. Come yeah. on. I didn't mean to say that. But, but sometimes going to the scene, all of us, we can deal with anything. We can handle anything. But the one thing, am I allowed to say it? The one thing that gets me is a smell. That, that is, to me, is the worst part of the job. I could deal with absolutely everything and anything. But um, if 
we go to a particular job where the person hasn't been found for some time, it can be, present a bit of a problem. When I ask you which of the cases that have stayed with you, that when you leave this job, you will go back and think, that one will mm. always be with me. What are those... Could you describe a case for me? I can only recall one job um, where I actually went home and, and sobbed. Um, and that was when I dealt with a friend's wife. Um, but I had no idea at the time when I attended the scene. It was quite a horrific taking of her own life to the point where she was unidentifiable, viewable. So I didn't know that it was her until a colleague rang me while I was standing next to her and told me who it was. At the time, you know, you put your professional head on and, and you deal with it. But the hardest thing was is that the police officer thought that as I knew the family, I could go along with him and break the news to the family. But of course, they knew what I did for a living. And as soon as they saw me, they knew that it, it, it was her. Um, so that was quite difficult to deal with. And the expectation from the family that they could contact me at any time and wanted to share information perhaps that I couldn't share with them. Um, but yeah, I, for me, that was the hardest job is, is dealing with people that you, you know um, and the families that you know and you have to get them through that inquest. So for me, that's, that's the one job that, yeah, I will take with me. Mm. For me, this was a baby which had been born preterm via, uh, I think it was a 16-year-old girl, and no one knew she was pregnant, and she locked herself away in her room for about three days. She'd obviously increased in size, and at one point had asked for um, some tissues. Her mum would put the food outside the door and she'd take it in um, with no one seeing her. Three days later she appears and mum's comment is, oh you look very slim. A few days later they're due to leave the house, move out. The young brother uh, is pulling bits of cardboard out of a, a cupboard when he finds the baby on this bit of cardboard. and. When I was called there, I mean, the, the afterbirth and everything had been wrapped up and put outside on a balcony. But for me, it, it was um, seeing this poor little mite on a bit of cardboard. That gave me one of the worst weekends of my life in terms of nightmares. Was it the fact that the baby was so neglected, so discarded? Yes. That affected you? Yes, uh, it just, just thrown away. Just thrown away. There was absolutely no dignity whatsoever. None whatsoever. And, um, yeah, that, that one will stay from, with me forever. And I sense, Karen, with what you've just said, that it was actually the breaking over that boundary, that, that you can keep that professional boundary and your emotions in check. But once that boundary gets demolished by circumstance, it becomes a much harder role. It does. Um, you can remain professional with, with your families, 
but when people know you personally, it becomes more difficult. I, you know, I knew this person, I knew her family, they're good friends of mine. Um, it just became very difficult to separate. Detach. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think because I, I think I'm very good at it, I suddenly realised that in that case, I couldn't, I couldn't put it in a box and, and deal with it on a professional level. I had to become personally involved. You're both married. From, yes. from what you've said mm. and I'm curious to know how your partners support you how important their support is my husband never normally wants me to talk about work <laughs> <laughs> um, he's very supportive in lots of other ways um, but it's not something I go home and he says hello dear how was your day um, we tend not to not to talk about it but my my husband my family my friends are all incredibly supportive of what I do and are very proud of what I do. I love my dogs. I <laughs> That's my, my outlet. I go home, I walk my dogs, I get cuddles from my dogs, I talk to my dogs. <laughs> That's my way of, of dealing with things. You said just then that your family and friends are very proud of what yeah. you do. Are you proud of what you do? Absolutely. Yeah. Mm. It's the best mm. thing I've done in my yeah. life. been listening to Dead Honest with me, Georgie Vesti. I want to thank Karen and Bob for being so open and so generous with their time. In the next episode, we're going to meet Lizzie, a death doula, who, like a midwife at birth, is a midwife for the dying. She explains what happens at the point of death, our most common regrets, and why if she catches you eating crisps at the deathbed, she'll chuck you out of the room. In the meantime, if you'd like to know more about the series, check out our website, deadhonest.com, for show notes and how to get in touch. I'd love to hear from you. And if you've enjoyed what you've heard so far, then click the subscribe button. It doesn't cost a cent. Or even better, post a review. I look forward to seeing you next time.